What is climate change? Put that on Google and tell me what you see. For me, I see a definition from the United Nations, some definitions from NASA, and another definition from the World Bank. These are the top results I get. But just before these ones, I get some sponsored definitions. One from Panda.org, another from UNFCCC, and another from an organization called People in Need. Why did I get these results? What results do you get when you put in this exact same request? What is climate change? The science behind all of this, how this algorithm works, what results you get, what messages has been pushed out, by who are such messages being pushed out? This is part of the conversation that I have with Malte Rodley on this episode of the Climate Talk podcast. It's a very exciting episode, believe me, not because I said that, but because you'll confirm it in a few minutes. Malte is a researcher in environmental communication who is also very interested in the implications of digital infrastructures, AI, the chat GPTs and the like, big data, algorithm, decision-making. He explores how this influences environmental governance practices. We spoke a lot about these algorithms, how it works, how it impacts people's decision. I also shared some insights about nudging and we tried to debate it back and forth. But in addition to that, we talked a lot about communicating climate change. Do we have enough of this climate science? Do we have to improve on how we then communicate these things? Or what exactly can we do better when it comes to getting more people to understand the urgency of our changing climate today? We also talked about the role of research, thousands of research in the library, online catalogs, on the shelves. But how do we communicate this research? How can we transmit the very useful insights that this research has been able to create? How can we transmit this to our day-to-day life? This is part of what Malti and I discussed on this episode. Welcome to this episode of the Climate Talk Podcast. My name is Shei Fumi Adebote. I'm your host. I'm your guide. Welcome. I hope it's going to be a smooth ride for the next half an hour thereabouts. If you're listening for the first time, the Climate Talk Podcast is a platform where we have conversations with Today, I'm speaking with a researcher, but I've spoken with young people, entrepreneurs, politicians, scientists, different people from different walks of life. We're just trying to explore what climate change is, talking about these issues, and also spotlighting some of the solutions. If you're curious about previous editions and what we've been discussing um, over the last two, three years that we've been hosting the Climate Talk podcast, you can find it on the website www.climatetalkpodcast.com. I'll take it again www.climatetalkpodcast.com. The Climate Talk podcast is also available on your favorite podcast listening platforms, over 20 of them um, Google Podcasts, iTunes, iHeart Radio, Castbox, Overbox. Um, Amazon Music, wherever it is you find your favorite podcast, you will find the Climate Talk podcast there. It's time to jump right into this conversation. Who exactly are you, Malte? Hi, I'm Malte. 
Malterodel. I work as a researcher and teacher at the Swedish University of Agricultural Sciences in Uppsala, Sweden. Uh, grew up in Germany, studied engineering and then sustainability sciences. Then I did a PhD in the social sciences. And now I work uh, with algorithms and how they impact environmental things. Great. So let's start from environmental things. Um, there's a lot happening these days that put the spotlights on environments. And for some people, they think this is a place to be because it's topical. Why exactly or what piqued your interest in, you know, zooming in on these environmental things, as you call it? Good question. I think, gosh, I think it started already when I was a teenager. Uh, I think the first time I was really in touch with, with climate change issues was in the mid-2000s, I think. So like when I was a teenager, uh, I went to a summer school about climate change uh, and it was super inspiring I think it was super nice and there you also feel like you know okay this is an interesting topic because it connects so many different things it kind of touches upon everything and you really need like you need to break out of boxes to solve any problems so that became very apparent I think on the summer school both and how it was set up and and how I experienced it and I think these things never let me go then afterwards. So I think when I studied engineering, I missed that a lot, which is then why I'd also changed my studies afterwards to kind of, don't know, be able to do something that you feel like is meaningful, not only for yourself or for your pocket, but for society and the, the global community at large. Um, so I think that's why I'm, I'm motivated every day to do things, because I feel like it does something. It helps to explain the world it helps to maybe make it a tiny bit better every day a tiny bit better we'll come to that and also mm. the um the parts of it been very meaningful but big shout out to all those who teach about climate and um, environmental stuff in summer schools in primary schools and from the very foundational point of education mm. it means that really goes on to shape um, the career paths that many young people in the future will be taking uh, very worth keeping in mind. I mean, coming from a place where it's also like, be a doctor, be an engineer, and you know, all of this very stereotypical good profession. Mm. It's good to see that there's mm. a bit of exposure to... Mm. to can, can we speak about that food? a bit more? Because I think, I think it's so interesting how like we associate with success sometimes these these classical professions that you mentioned, like being a doctor or an engineer, like someone who makes money. And I think for me, it was also, I also had this idea in mind. Also, my parents were like, oh, yeah, you should become an engineer. I was like, once I started it, I was like, yeah, that's fine. But so what, right? What am I doing here? And then I kind of was working a bit and you realized, yes, it's so much fun what, you, what I was doing. But I was like, OK, but who's who's benefiting from that? Like, who am I serving here? And in the end, you just realize that you're working for a company that wants to make more money and you're thinking, no, that's not what I want. And that's why I think environmental topics are so important and interesting because you feel like you have a meaning in whatever you do and it's still fun and it's still really interesting to work with these things. Interesting. So let's try to um, draw some dividing lines here. When you look at the topic of environment, there is a group of people, the business people, companies who will just, you know, signpost the environment or climate change because it's um, the right thing to do. Um, they want to be politically correct. 
And there is also this group of people, the academics, where you are right now, who try to understand the world, dig in to find out how things work, environmentally speaking. How can we make people understand this better? How can we simplify this knowledge and make it useful? Um, so um, you, you, you touched on the first part. So let's look at the second part now. As an academic in the environmental space, how then do you think that your work is meaningful in practical terms? Mm -hmm. Very good question. I think that's a question we always have to, I think, keep in mind as researchers because often we do things that are not meaningful. Um, so I think, so maybe first we need to discuss what my work is about to then say, why is it meaningful? So I study in my much of my current work, I study algorithmic systems so think of google think of facebook think of all the other online platforms um, where an algorithm so like some kind of rule that a computer executes defines or shapes what you see this algorithm says this is what you should see this is what you shouldn't see it kind of determines relevance um, so that's, I think, the premise behind much of what I'm currently working on. And what I'm interested in here is how these decisions that algorithmic systems make, how they impact our understanding of the environment or even our awareness of environmental problems. So we spent quite a lot of last year investigating search engines more and looking at sort of when, when we Google things, for example, what environmental implications can we see or are absent from the search results so when you google do you have kids yes yes so when you google children's clothes right what do you expect to see mm. well i expect to see first asking me if it's a male or female and then asking me the age and mm. then um, depending on where I am, probably I see some popular brands like mm -hmm. the H&M's mm -hmm. and the Zara's, mm -hmm. yeah. And I then more consciously try to fine tune mm -hmm. into what exactly do I want, budget-wise, mm -hmm. uh, style-wise. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's interesting, right? Because we just take this for granted. And what we asked ourselves in our research is what environmental implications do exactly this default idea of what we have, what search results do, what implications that has. So think about the alternative. Google could tell you about when you want to dress children, the most common ways to get children's clothes are swapping, getting things from other parents, buying secondhand because you only need them for half a year because your kids then growing out of this, right? So who actually buys new things for kids? Right? And what environmental implications does it have when everyone buys new stuff for kids all the time? Because that's what Google says. You won't find a second-hand shop on the first result page. You won't have anything that says, oh, actually, there's like 20,000 second-hand shops in town where you can do this. Here's a Facebook group where parents are swapping stuff. So if you think about all these like missing things that Google doesn't tell you about, that has huge environmental implications for how you engage with this topic. And what then you might understand or do later. And we can do the same with other things. With, with I don't know, if you enter uh, two cities into Google, like Stockholm and Berlin. Mm -hmm. There is a night train going between Stockholm and Berlin, but Google will tell you, you should fly. Mm -hmm. But you could also think of lots of other things. You can think, oh, which city is more livable or comparing the weather. Like, there's nothing in the search query 
Stockholm, Berlin that says you want to travel in between them and you want to travel fast. It's just two cities. And Google assumes and search engines assume that you want to travel between them and that this travel for some reason should be fast and high carbon emissions. Why? Right? So this is this is the things we've been dealing a lot with in our research. And I do think putting names on these concepts is super important to communicate them and to also understand better sort of how the information infrastructure we're embedded in, how this shapes our environmental related decision making. Um, so now we come to the point that you ask, um, what impact does it have? I think sort of by, by putting a name on something and by researching it, by saying, hey, look, there's, there's something here that we can explain. Mm but that also has consequences, you can kind of put a finger on something. And I think that's the role of research. The role of research is not to, especially of social science research, is not to provide numbers or, or scientific accuracy. That's not what social scientists, in my view, can do, but it can put a finger on things and say, this is something we need to look for. Mm. Here's how we can engage in that. So we're writing a lot of things in popular science magazines you can find some stuff from me on the conversation or on other blogs on the internet uh, sometimes i participate in podcasts next week we'll organize a symposium where we hope to connect researchers with decision makers so with with people who work in the swedish government or local government in ngos even in danish government because we're having the symposium in lund in southern sweden so we're hoping to connect people to to create a stronger understanding for the recent topic and research for, for decision makers and who people who engage with regulating environmental things with understanding the internet. Um, yeah, that's what we hope to do. And once you have these contexts, then you can go further, mm -hmm. I think. Interesting. And I think you put it in a very simple terms. It makes it very simple for the listener to understand how algorithms works and how to rethink what you get. And I wonder to you listening, if I don't know how you, some, um, you, you get this particular edition of the podcast, probably some algorithms threw it your way or otherwise, but it's just interesting to see how, um, well, not just Google, just so they don't think we're eating on Google, but the internet generally works when it comes to um, putting out specific things. Uh, there is also the point of, you know, advertisement and nudging. I've been reading a book by, um, I think is Richard Thaler and, and one of his colleagues, um, Susten, um, about nudge. And it talks a lot about how the buildings uh, where we live in, uh, the ways food are arranged in the buffet settings and the way clothes are arranged in a boutique and all this, how they are sort of positioned to nudge you in some directions. Mm -hmm. And and I was thinking about it the other day, I was um, getting some clothes and I saw that I picked some of the very things that I thought was nice uh, when I got into the entrance. And just when I was exiting, I saw a lot more nicer things for cheaper price. And I'm like, wait, I should get more <laughs> or should I return these? Mm -hmm. So it just made me very conscious of how... Um, so simply, I mean, not in, in your face, but somehow there is, we are all being nudged in, in some direction. And to, to connect it back to the work you do with um, algorithms and um, understanding how our social sciences works, what would you say have been some interesting um, 
outcomes that you've seen in, in the line of your work recently? What a question. Hmm. Uh, and what you described with the supermarket and with the nudging is super characteristic for our time. And I would say that the difference to the stuff I research on algorithms is minimal. It's both an environment, a designed environment where something or someone makes decisions on what stuff you should see and when and how, mm. right? And so in, in the case of a supermarket, it's people who make the decision who say, here is this expensive stuff and there's the cheap stuff and you should mostly see the expensive stuff. And if you put a lot of effort in, then you can also find the, find the cheapest stuff. And the same you can argue happens on the internet, right? You find the stuff that a search engine or Facebook wants you to see where people comment on more because then Facebook thinks then you're going to stay longer on the platform. You can also see the stuff that one of your friends posts where no one else comments, but that's harder to see because Facebook thinks, yeah, then you don't stay long on the platform. Mm. Same for Google. You can go to the third search page. Maybe you find this going back to our example to the second hand shop. Mm. But on the first page, you see the things that create more traffic where people have optimized their search better. So it's just kind of the more attractive things. Um, as well as the advertisement. So in both cases, it's very much the same. It's just that it's different rules that govern these decisions. And I think sort of investigating these decisions and understanding where they come about and how they integrate with an information infrastructure or with a designed environment mm. is really important. I think both in case of the supermarkets and the clothes shops you described, but also in terms of the digital environments that we spend so much time living and, and communicating nowadays. Mm. Okay, we can probably come back to something that you think is really outstanding about the work you do, uh, but perhaps <laughs> let's, <laughs> I mean, I really want to, to, yes, to yes. hear a bit about that. Mm. But um, recently I've also been in lots of reading, academic reading, and also some other forms of reading because I'm always curious about knowledge. And one thing that I found out is in books or in research or journals as we have it, they are quite interesting results that have been birthed from research that people have invested lots of time and resources and collaboration and traveling experiences to then put out what can shape or improve our world today. But I find it quite sad that outside of those, you know, bubbles, academic bubbles of students who read because they want to pass an exam, there is not an effective way of transmitting, at least to a large extent, of transmitting this very outstanding research work, research-based, science-proven, you know, results to our everyday life. And it makes me worried. I wonder how you think about what you think about this. Yes, lots of things. Um, I think we have to always imagine, or like what, what I like to think of when I ask myself these questions is, who makes decisions and mm. sort of where does the power lie in society? So I'm sure people in decision-making positions see all this stuff and they maybe also do their own research. Like all these big companies, they do research on, for example, how is our, how do people navigate search results or how do people go shopping in a supermarket? They know all this, but their interest is not to work for the environment, but their interest is to make you stay longer on a platform, to buy more things in a supermarket, to click more on advertising links. So the question is, I guess, 
who is deciding and what interests do they have? And I think that's the key problems. I think that we're, we're living in a time where many important decisions have been taken away or the state has outsourced them to corporations that do not have the same incentive to work for the societal well-being. Um, so corporations mostly work for their own profit and for the shareholders and not for the well-being of the society. And I think that's the key problem. Um, so I think research, you're right, research is also not very well communicated in some points and in many cases maybe. Um, at the same time, I think those people who decide are very well aware of many things going on and still they make decisions going against it because even if you're in the government, you might say, okay, actually, economy is more important than well-being, right? Oh, we should have jobs so that people can pay in our pension system. Mm. Fair enough. But, you know, there's always trade-offs and there's always decisions to make. And I think often enough we make decisions that, that favor traditional interests of the elites, of the social, societal and economic elites. Not to say that this is a problem, but it's just what it is. Uh, and not for future generations, for nature, for animals, for anything that maybe increases our well-being in a different way than through the monetary way. Hmm. So that means we really have to rethink or sort of invest in new ways of transferring this knowledge? Uh... Yeah, I don't know. I'm, I understand your point. The problem is, I think, when we think of other ways, so if, if you think there's maybe, I, I always say there's two different pathways, and we've discussed them probably many times before, there's two different pathways to change society, I would say. The one is to change the structures of the society, and the other way is to change what people do. So we just discussed, or I just discussed that changing the structures of society is really uh, difficult because the people who make decisions have different interests. The alternative is to change what people do. But then you end up in situations where you make people responsible for changing the world, whereas actually they're not the ones screwing over. Because as you said, you go in a supermarket and you feel nudged. You feel almost like you, you buy this stuff because it's there, not because you feel like it's the best decision. Mm. Right? So, so by making people responsible for this, we're also not getting anywhere because then we're taking away any responsibilities from these large corporations. So I, I don't usually like having despair and ending on a negative note, but I don't have a solution for this. I just think it's not a good idea either to, 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 to responsibilize people and say, oh, you should do these and these and these things different. Mm -hmm. Like no one is being helped by me saying, oh, why don't you take the train if the airplane is so much cheaper? I mean, I, I try to not fly. I, don't, I haven't fly, flown in a couple of years. But I understand everyone who says, no, actually, when I visit my parents in, I don't know, a train day away, I fly because it's cheaper and because it saves time. Like, of course, it just makes sense, right? But the problem is they're not, should we tell the people to take the train, but rather we should make it more expensive to fly so that you don't fly eight hours northwards to Umeå or something. Uh, so I think these are the problems we're engaging with, like who is responsible for something and should we make those responsible and hold those to account that create the context in mm. which these are possible or should we make people responsible who actually just also decide in their own interest because maybe they don't have as much money or as much time as they would like to. 
Interesting. Many questions and I'm wrapping up my head uh, and I'm trying to push them back. One of one of the thoughts I'm having now is um, with the conference of parties happening over the years and we'll have the 28th one in uh, United Arab Emirates. Uh, and this is where policymakers will come. And like you say, most of them will fly down there, but I'm not saying... But they would come and make decisions that does not challenge the system because they want to keep it that way. And most times there is this disconnect between what the science says. Okay, we're get, getting towards two degrees and things will get bad and we need to change things. And it ends up in speeches. We need to change things. But this kind of conferences or platforms are funded by, you know, the guys who want the system to remain. So sometimes I, I just find it a bit, you know, uh, difficult. But that's a discussion for another day. Now, this next question. I mean, we've had some communication before now. And you said it's a bit out of your comfort zone. But I do not imagine that you will not have, you know, some very tangible response. Now, this is the Climate Talk podcast. And what I try to do simply is to talk about climate and educate people. Uh, and I'm just going to put it very basic, um, very simple, as simple as it can be. The conversation of climate change is based on science. And many times, communicating the science is not as easy as even the scientists really want it to be. Sometimes I see Johan Rockstrom speaks and he talks about tipping point and you can see he's really passionate. It's like, I want you to get what I'm talking about. But most times people just look at him and look at the graphs and be like, mm, okay, okay. So my question is this. Do you think there are more effective ways of communicating the science behind climate change? I think, and that's not my, only my own opinion, but other people are arguing that as well. I think the Conference of the Parties, for example, and all the other things, the IPCC reports, I think they've established enough science. Like, we know 100% we're going to shit. <laughs> we know 100% we need to do something, like three days ago or three years ago and like we know everything we need to do the science is super clear and i think the the problem is not to communicate that science better because more knowledge is not gonna change these systems that don't want to change mm. right so sort of people are arguing at least in, in the social science circles i um i i engage in people are arguing that we don't need more climate science but we need science about implementation we need to understand a how can we adapt how can we change but also b how do we make the system change now because there is no reasonable debate or argument anymore that that we don't need to do anything we know exactly what we need to do we know exactly that we need to do things urgently the question is how do we make this happen when everything around us says yeah, let's just wait another year, you know? So I, I think that's that's the key point. So no, I don't think we need to communicate science better. We need to implement it. And knowledge doesn't help because we know everything. Or like, we don't know everything, but we know enough to to have, to to feel the urge to make decisions urgently. Um, yeah, that would be my response. And that is really profound. Also, taking it to where we started from, it also shows the importance of the work you do as a social scientist now, trying to understand how system works, how to make mm -hmm. systems better and use what we have, the enough knowledge we have from science. Great. Thank you so much for this very interesting, enlightening conversation. I must also thank you for making it as simple as it can be. At least we did not throw in so much of the 
big big jargons <laughs> and and i really do hope that you the listener can also appreciate some of the insights we've shared on this on this podcast i wonder if there are closing thoughts from you uh, lots of them uh, i think maybe one one of them to add is of course we need science i don't want to say we don't need science but we know enough to act in this case right so so of course i don't want to say we shouldn't have climate scientists anymore so that's maybe the last word uh, and maybe another last word is think about in relation to the conversation we had early on on search engines and, and social media think about and try to understand the information infrastructures the the things that you engage with every day and try to think about okay why am i seeing this now what does it mean and who or what decides that i'm seeing this now and i think that's that's super important that we do not take anything we see on the internet for granted even if it's as inconspicuous as as google because there's always something that we don't see there's always relevance decisions and of course we don't see climate denial stuff on the internet when we google right but we also don't see the sustainable children's clothes the swapping the sharing because maybe that's not what we looked for or maybe that's not what other people look for there can be tons of reasons so so always think about what what is it that i want and have i understood the implications of this search of this engagement with social media and what does it do to me i think that's super important that we need to understand that these platforms are commercial and they want us to stay as long as possible so that they can maximize the advertising revenue etc and then we need to critically interrogate okay is that actually useful for me and that's maybe my my closing word and that's a nice place to call it a wrap thank you so much once again i do appreciate thank you what an episode what a conversation thank you so much again multi for your time for this insight and of course hereafter i will have a lot of questions evaluating how i see things evaluating what results i get on when i put things on the search um, box and trying to find out if i can find my right answers on the third or fourth or even the tenth page <laughs> but that's about it on this episode of the climate talk podcast thank you so much again Marty. thanks to you for listening uh feel free to share this with your network if you think there's there are people within your network that will find this useful feel free to share the link with them if you want to reach me my email is shay at climatetalkpodcast.com and that's spelled s-e-y-i at climatetalkpodcast.com i'll be happy to read from you and as much as i can i will reply your emails until the next episode of the climate talk podcast just know that i am trying to do something to make the world a better place where i am and i urge you to do the same bye for now